We want to talk today about perspective in life. Um, that, that a lot of times life can look one way when in reality it's another. Um, and oftentimes, and you'll see these, these optical illusions, um, like in this case, this, this, this dude looks like he's three inches tall and getting squashed by this guy's foot. When in reality, of course, this one's easy, right? He's just standing about 30 yards back. He looks, he's not actually that tiny. That guy's foot's not actually that big. This one's tougher, though. Um, and I haven't actually, if, if anybody can tell me exactly why it looks like he's 10 feet tall, uh, after the service, I'll give you, I don't know, a million dollars or something. Uh, but, but you can see clearly uh, that something's going on there to deceive us. It, it looks one way when it is another way. Or you've probably seen this one before. These lines look crooked, right? It looks like that all of these lines, these horizontal lines are slanted when actually it's just the staggering of those checkers that make it look like that. If you take one of the lines away, you can see that those indeed are straight lines. What, what appears crooked at first glance is actually straight. And then finally this one, and this one's trippy. So there's, do you see a young woman or an old woman? Here's the, so if you see that this is the eyelash and the little nose of the younger woman, and this is her chin, but if this is the eyeball, and then you see the nose and the mouth of an elderly, is this, am I blowing your mind? Is this magic? No, I'm, I'm all, I, who knew? So, so as you look at these images, and this is the same thing in our lives, that we can look at our lives and we can see one thing, when in reality, if, if we see it through a different lens, it is quite another. And, and the life of Paul was the same way. And if there's anybody who would understand this, it's a man named Dave Dravecki. Dave Dravecki, um, it's the bottom of the sixth inning. Dave's on the mound. Hottest bat in the lineup, the opposing lineup, Tim Raines, is at the plate. And Dravecki stares at the pitcher, trying to get the, or the catcher, getting the signal. Checks off the runner at first base. Steps high off the rubber. Develops, d- delivers a nasty fastball. And it is the last pitch that Dave Dravecki will ever throw in his major league career. The sickening crack can be heard throughout the entire stadium. Dave's arm has snapped into two pieces. And he said, my, my arm, he said, it felt like I'd been hit with a meat axe. And, and he had to actually hold his arm from flying forward toward home plate. And he, and he tumbled to the ground screaming. And this is kind of a, this is an, a, an appropriate image um, of him on the ground at that moment. Um, his baseball career was over, but his, the trials had just begun. Uh, Dave's arm had actually been weakened by cancer. And that was one of the reasons that it, that it broke so easily. And they actually had to amputate his arm um, at the shoulder to keep the cancer from spreading to the rest of his body. Dave had been in the prime of his baseball career. He was poised to make millions of dollars, have a, a career full of success and fame, and it was all over in one pitch. Then something cool happened. Several weeks after his surgery, he came back to his home stadium in San Francisco, and he was met by a stadium packed with people. And when he walked into the center of the field, there was a standing ovation. And and Dave took that as the first of countless opportunities to speak to the glory of God in his life and to praise his Jesus. 
And that next day, Dave was actually given, in one day, he was called and contacted for over 700 speaking engagements because of what he had been through and the way that he walked through it. So what, what initially appeared to be a tragedy took on the look of a victory and an opportunity to tell the world about Jesus. David Jeremiah said it this way, he said, the prisons of our lives can often become places of great opportunity and ministry. What looks like a tragedy, God can use as opportunity. And if there's anybody that knew this in a literal sense, it was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is in jail as he's writing this very letter. One of Paul's greatest desires was to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul knew that Rome was, was the hub and the namesake of the, the vast Roman Empire, the, the greatest empire on earth. And so he looked at Rome and he thought, man, if we can get the gospel into Rome, it will spread like wildfire worldwide. And I love Paul. I love that that's his mentality. Like he just looks at Rome and he's like, you need Jesus. I mean, you think about like if we went to New York City and saw those towering size skyscrapers and millions of people and we said, I'm bringing them Jesus. I mean, Paul's like this Christian Batman. He's, he's incredible. Um, but he mentions this in Acts chapter 19 about his desire to go to Rome. In fact, that's the reason he wrote the book of Romans, was to send that ahead and to explain to Rome what he believed about, the, about Jesus, and then he would come kind of to prime the pump, and then he would follow and, and preach there um, to the Romans. But we've got to be careful what we pray for, right? Like when we pray for God to grow us, that's a scary prayer because of the means that he often uses to do so. And Paul sends, or God sends Paul to Rome, but not as a preacher, he sends him as a prisoner. And uh, here simply in verse 12, what he says is, he goes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, and then he just keeps on going. So, so he just briefly goes over it, but actually if you look at the last fourth of Acts, chapters 21 through 28, it gets into the details of what happened to Paul. And the cliff notes are, just like Jesus, Paul was hated by a lot of people. Both Jews and Gentiles um, hated Paul. And, and, they, and they, just like Jesus, they illegally arrested him uh, because of the threat that they perceived that he was um, to the government. And so Paul, it, he, because, he, but he, because he was a Roman citizen, he was able to appeal to Caesar about his, and, and take his case uh, to Caesar, but on the way to Rome, his, he gets shipwrecked, and they're left on a deserted island on Malta for three months before they're finally able to get back to Rome to go on trial and to be thrown into prison. There's anybody who has a severe case of Murphy's Law it could be Paul, right? On the one hand, on the one perspective, and it would be easy if we're in Paul's shoes to complain and to be afraid and, and to be depressed. I mean, these are hard things, but to a man like Paul, to a man like Paul who had one magnificent obsession, he found joy in these circumstances. And what was his obsession? It was Jesus. He goes, if I have opportunity, he's going to say in this passage, if I have opportunity to know Jesus and to show Jesus, to exalt him in my body, then I'm going to rejoice regardless of the circumstance. Verse 12 
It says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This word advance, it was a, it was a military term. It was, a, it was a military term in Greek that meant like to go out as a military scout or engineer and explore an area where they had not yet gone. Um, we would think of the, another word would be a pioneer. Um, we know in the wild, wild west, when, when the westward expansion, the first white people to ever go west, um, they moved that direction and went into unsettled areas. Um, at that time. And, and, and that's, you know, it, it basically the idea is of a trailblazer. A trailblazer. I, I actually Google image trailblazer, and this is all I could find, so I don't know if that, if that helps you. Great. If it doesn't, we got to laugh. Um, inst- instead of seeing himself as a prisoner, instead of Paul seeing himself as, as in, a, in, a, in, a, in a bad situation, he saw a situation where he had an opportunity to pioneer to blaze a trail with the gospel into places it had never been and that he might have never had opportunity to take it to otherwise. It's amazing. Just like that optical illusion, our lives are a matter of perspective. And, and, and Paul uses three tools. Three trail, God uses th- three tools, trailblazing tools in the life of Paul. And we're going to look at those in these 15 verses this morning. Uh, he uses Paul's chains, he uses Paul's critics, and he uses Paul's crisis. So the first one there, is Paul's chains. Um, two things that he does with Paul's chains. He uses them for contact with the lost, first of all. And let's look at verses 12 and 13 together. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, and we'll come back to that phrase, and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Paul's chains gave him contact with the lost. He, he was chained to another Roman soldier 24 hours a day. It says that the word chains there, it meant wrist to wrist. So he's holding hands with this Roman soldier, and they would take six-hour shifts. So he got four different soldiers every day. For two years, he was under house arrest. That's 3,000 different opportunities to be chained wrist to wrist with one of these soldiers. And I just imagine every time Paul gets a new guy linked up to him, he just like looks at him winks at him, he's like, you're going to get the gospel. Like, and you think, I would, which one's the one being chained to who, right? I mean, it's what a, what a, what a way that God uses people. And, and this word, um, the, the whole palace guard, it meant, it's, your translation might say the praetorian guard. It was this really elite level of Roman guard. It was kind of, maybe our dynamic would be like a secret service member or a Navy SEAL or somebody. Like one of the, the, one of the most advanced kind of elite guards they had in Rome at the time and, and we have it on record that many of these men came to know Jesus because of being chained to the Apostle Paul. It's an incredible to think that he was chained to them. He wrote four of the books of our New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and Philemon, were written while he was chained to these guards. And he was, they were dictated. So he's speaking them to somebody else as they're writing them. So these guards are hearing those words being dictated. Paul is praying without ceasing. And in Acts 28, we see that countless people are coming to Paul. He wasn't allowed to leave the house, but they could come to him. Acts 28 says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So while Paul's in prison, Countless people are coming to him, hearing about Jesus, believing Jesus, and these guards themselves are being told the gospel. It would be like being chained to Billy Graham, right? 
and you're going to hear about Jesus. But there was also something about Paul's trial that gave some unique um, opportunity. Christianity had, it was very new. We're, we're 15, 20 years in when Paul's writing this. And so because of that, um, the Roman government wants to know what this whole Christianity movement is all about. Is this going to be a threat to the government? And so what happens is these very high-ranking officials, they want to inspect Christianity. They want to give it a deep look to know what's going on with this movement. And Paul, he goes, I'm not freaked out about that. He actually gets geeked because these high-ranking officials have to study about Jesus. They have to study Christianity. He's going, these guys are going to get saved because of my chains. And and maybe you've felt in your life that uh, there's been some chains that have been put on you. Maybe it's a situation that on the surface, it's undesirable. Uh, Maybe it's difficult. And it's easy to look at those things when in reality, God could be giving us an opportunity to take the gospel somewhere where it's never been before. I mean, maybe you're going through an illness, and, and you're in the hospital with nurses and, and, and doctors and other patients, people who might not otherwise be confronted with Jesus on a personal level. Maybe it's you at your work, and you're in a tough situation, and it's easy to, to, to look at that from a human level and, and be, be uh, disappointed or depressed about where God has us, but maybe God's put you in a place with coworkers that nobody else has opportunity to take the gospel in their lives as you go to lunch with them and you work with them day in and day out. Maybe you're at home with your children, and you have a unique influence and, and path, a trail to blaze with your children that no one else on earth has. Warren Wearsby says, here's the secret. Here's the secret to, to seeing things from God's perspective. He goes, this, the secret is this. When you have the single mind, when we have our magnificent obsession as him, you look on your circumstances as God-given opportunities for the furtherance of the gospel. And you rejoice at what God is going to do instead of complaining about what God did not do. And there's a lot of growth that I know I have to do. To, to learn that secret. The second thing that Paul has because of his chains is he gives courage to the saved. Verse 14, he says, And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Just like Dave Dravecki, when he broke his arm, it actually gave him opportunity to inspire and encourage millions of people. Paul says here that his imprisonment has given confidence and boldness to countless brothers and sisters to likewise go and preach the gospel. They say, man, if Paul's doing it and he's persevering, God can do that in our lives too. Tertullian um, was famous for saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In In other words, the way that the church grows is through the spilt blood of men and women giving their lives for Jesus. And the gospel throughout history, and it's true today, and it's been true all throughout history, the gospel grows the fastest where the persecution is the greatest. Think about that. The gospel actually grows the fastest and, and, and the most in the places where the persecution is the greatest. We would, and that seems, seems kind of counterintuitive at first, right? You would think the gospel would grow the fastest where there was the most freedom where we were kind of encouraged, or at least not inhibited, to speak the gospel. But, but that's actually not the case. If you look in, in, the, in the world today, in places like America, in places where we have freedom to preach, 
The gospel's growing very slowly compared to the 1040 window, compared to the, the places <clears throat> where people are being persecuted for the sake of Christ. And what happens is when people in persecuted countries see their fellow brothers and sisters courageously giving their lives to the Lord, it emboldens them and encourages them to go and to do the same. You think about the inspiring tales of people from, from, from the past. Um, you, you probably remember the men, End of the Spear. There's been a few movies kind of made about these guys. But there was five missionaries who went to Ecuador. <clears throat> they preached to the Waodani tribe. And uh, they were killed. Before they even got to mention the name of Christ, they were killed by these tribal people who didn't know what they were doing, what their aim was. So my question to you is, is that a tragedy? Is that a waste of their lives? Well, they died and they didn't even get to give them the gospel. Well, we read down here at the bottom, this is kind of a grainy picture I found. He said, now 50 years later, their sacrifice has resulted in reconciliation and transformation in the tribe. So a little while later, the, more missionaries go, and then they actually, the tribe comes to know Jesus. And the Waodani are, are changed, and, they, and they're reconciled with their God. But beyond that, it says this story has inspired thousands to serve Christ. So were the lives of these five men a waste? Is it a tragedy? I don't think it is. Because even though they laid their lives down, thousands of people saw the sacrifice and the the deep-rooted belief they had in this living Jesus, and they went out and preached the gospel. Millions of people have come to the Lord because of the lives given by these five men. So Paul, his chains are used to have contact with these unsaved and give encouragement to the saved. The second thing that God uses is Paul's critics. Look at what he says in verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospels. There's two different kinds of people that are preaching. Some of them are doing it out of envy toward Paul, and some of them are doing it out of love for Paul. So the latter do out of love, but the former, he says, preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So for some reason, and we don't have any more insight on what's going on here, but there are these haters, these Paul haters out there that are preaching out of rivalry with Paul. I don't know if they're just like, we're sick of Paul and all the people that are following him. We want more people to follow us. This is what Paul's response is to this. He goes, well, what does that matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, this, what this indicates to us is that they were preaching the actual gospel. If they were preaching a false gospel, if they were adding works to salvation, we see in the book of Galatians, Paul has, he has no tolerance for a false gospel. And he has very hard words for people who don't deliver the, the, the truth of who Jesus is. So they were preaching the true gospel, but it was with the wrong motives, for the wrong reasons. And what he says is they're preaching it out of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, it means to canvas for office in order to get people to support you. Okay, it's, it's a word that would be used in politics, and this is a timely uh, season in, in our country's uh, uh, existence to think about that. And, and how often, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but how often do candidates take these issues... And they take the issues, and they don't actually care about the issues themselves, but they're just using whatever they need to do to get your vote. It's not whether or not they care about that actual issue. They're just doing whatever they can to get that target demographic to vote for them. That's the selfish ambition that he's talking about. He, He says, for them, it wasn't just, are you following Jesus? It's, are you following us as opposed to Paul? 
See, they had selfishness wrapped up, and this is an easy thing to do in Christianity where we make it about ourselves and not about Jesus. You know, and, and to put this in a place where I can live, it's not just like, hey man, are you following Jesus? It's are you attending Peninsula Grace Brethren Church? And it's my strong belief that if somebody is in love with Jesus and loving other people, if they're advancing the gospel, and I don't care if they're doing it here or at Birchridge or at Salatina Bible Chapel, you know, if it's a, if it's a place that tre- preaches the true gospel, then the praise God. Like, we're all on the same team. We're all working toward the same kingdom. And that's Paul's response here. He goes, hey, man, God is going to use their selfish means. Now, they're not going to be rewarded for it. There's some trouble coming from those, those people. But he goes, if Jesus is being preached, if the gospel is being preached, I rejoice. I rejoice. Paul is using, God is using my critics to advance the gospel. And the last thing he uses is Paul's crisis. Think about this for a second. Paul might very well die. And he knows that as he's writing this letter. If he's found a traitor at Rome, in Rome, he's going to be executed. Now it turns out this visit to Rome, he's not killed but he goes there a second time, and and then he is killed. So you put yourself in his shoes, like you're potentially on death row. You're staring death in the face, and what's your response? What's your response? Here's Paul's. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Like, is Paul crazy? (laughs) Like, is he touching, does he realize what, what's going on in his life? He's rejoicing in the midst of potentially dying, in the midst of being beaten and imprisoned. But here's why. He says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now when he says deliverance, we know clearly, Paul's very aware that he could die. I don't think when he's saying deliverance, it can also mean salvation. I don't think he's meaning that he's not going to die, that he's even going to necessarily be released from prison. I don't think that's what's on his plate. Verse 20 gives us some insight into into what this is. He goes, here's what I eagerly expect. Eagerly expect was this kind of really rare Greek word, and it meant kind of straining your neck, looking at something down the road. So what is it that has Paul's attention? Where is his focus? What is it that he's eagerly expecting? And here it is in verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way, I will in no way be ashamed But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He goes, I don't care if I live or die. That's not what I'm putting my hope in. My hope is that whatever I go through, whatever it is that I'm facing, that I will not be ashamed of my actions, that Christ will give me courage, and it's going to be through your prayers and through the Jesus that lives in me, that I will continue to do his work, I will continue to spread the gospel, and I will exalt the Lord Jesus in my body. That's a magnificent obsession. This word exalted, it can be translated uh, magnified. Um, in, your, in your Bible, it might be, some, some of them say to, glor- to be gloried in. Um, this word magnified, of course, we, we know it means to make something bigger. Now, you might say, well, that seems, is that an audacious thing to say? Like, can we, as tiny, puny, little specks of human beings, magnify the creator of the universe? How, how do we make him look bigger? We think about how a telescope works. Okay, you have a telescope, and, and, and I'm no scientist, but 
A telescope is a lot smaller than a star. I, I think that's fair to say, right? It's a lot less significant than a star, a lot less impressive than a star. And yet God can use that telescope. If we look through the lens of that telescope, that telescope can be used to make those stars much bigger and much more significant. And what seems to be very far away when you look through that telescope seems to be a lot closer. In the same way, kind of from the other end, think about how a microscope is used, right? A microscope takes something that seems to be small, that seems to be insignificant, and it makes it bigger. And we see the wonderful detail of things that we otherwise can barely see at all. And I think what Paul is saying here is he goes, as someone watches us go through a crisis, as we live our lives out in front of this world, And he says, as I continue to cling to Jesus, as I rejoice in my sufferings, as I am unwaveringly confident and continue to preach the gospel unashamedly. Because what what happens in that is God takes what is small and insignificant. And as people watch through the lens of my life, it makes that God who seems very far away closer to people. It, It shows him in more wonderful detail than they've ever seen. Imagine that God has u- is using us to make Jesus look bigger to the world. What a privilege that we've been given. And then Paul, and he's such an amazing example, the last five verses, he says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. We're going to see him being torn here. He goes, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is by, better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is crazy. Paul is wrestling with whether he wants to live or die, but the reason why is incredible. You know, like when you were first dating somebody, um, and, like, there's, there's that Twitter patient phase where you're just in L-O-V-E, right? And you just want to be in that permacuddle, right? You just never want to leave them. You're just in this constant entanglement. And the only time you'll leave is if they're like, you know, honey, yes, dear? You know, would you be a, a doll and get me a, I don't know, a glass of lemonade or, or whatever it is that they want you to go and fetch anything for you, babe? I'll be right back. You stay right there, you know? Or maybe it's that you have to go to work or you have to at some point sleep and be away from them. It's like whatever it is that you're doing, that's just time away from them. And if it somehow serves the purpose of then being with them or advancing your relationship with them, then you're in. But otherwise, it's just like, why would I want to be apart from them? I love them, right? And Paul is so in love with Jesus that all he wants to do is be with him. And he goes, I I love you all, but he goes, it's way better to be with Jesus. Not even a contest, but if he has something for me to do on this earth, if he has a task for me to do, and that's going to advance my relationship with him and your relationship with him, then I'll do it. But I'm only going to do it for as long as he has that work for me, and then I get to go back and be with the lover of my soul. You may have heard the expression before, to be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Is this expression that kind of says, like, if all your, your head's in the clouds and you're just thinking about Jesus all the time, then you're not actually here in reality with people on earth. You're not actually any earthly good. But, but I think that saying is a bunch of garbage. I think the only way we can be any earthly good is to be heavenly minded. I, I think the only thing 
The only thing that we can offer this world is what's not in this world. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if you read history, I'm sorry, this is kind of hard to read. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. So the, the reason that we, we're not effective in this world is because our, our head's not in the clouds. Our head's not with Jesus. Put your mind on things above where Christ is. See, at the right hand of God, the only thing we have to offer people in this life is the Jesus that is in that life. Have you ever thought, like, why, why, why doesn't God just snatch us up the second we're saved? you ever thought about that? Like, why, I mean, why are we still here? Why would he leave us here? If we're saved now, we can be with him. Why can't we just go be with him? Like, why stay in this world of, of, of trials and suffering and pain and temptation? And I believe, as I look through scripture, there's only one reason, and it's what Paul's saying here. We have a job to do. We're left on earth because we have a purpose. And our commander-in-chief told us that right before he left. He said, go into the world and make disciples. The only reason we're still here is because we are called to make disciples of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's it. He says, I'm here for your joy and progress in the faith. There's fruitful labor to be done here. Otherwise, I'd just rather go and be with Jesus. If we're not using our lives to make a difference in the lives of other people, we're wasting them. We're wasting them. We have lost sight of the purpose of living Paul says in verse 26, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus will abound on account of me. When we leave an encounter with a person, do we leave them boasting more in Jesus? Now I have to say that many times in people, in encounters with my life with people, they're not leaving boasting in Jesus more. And I'm not living out my purpose. Living for self is the long road to nowhere. Living for self is the long road to nowhere. It is the worst possible option in our lives because we're not able to be with Jesus, which is where our heart is, but then we're not living out his purposes here on earth. It's the worst possible option. So let me ask you this. What is your magnificent obsession? What is it that consumes you in your life? And this will determine how you view that image. Or you buy into the illusion and see the crooked lines, we see the straight lines crooked, or we see reality for what it really is. If, if ourselves, if we are the obsession in our lives, then pain is to be avoided, immediate pleasure and comfort is to be sought after, after at all cost, and we're just going to try to prolong death as long as possible. But if, like Paul, he is our obsession, if Jesus is at the center of everything we do, then all of our circumstances, what we would call good and what we would call bad, all of them can be used to magnify him in our bodies. And then life, death, death is gain. Like we don't have to fear death because we can be with him. And in that case, he calls it gain. The reason that Paul doesn't fear death and he doesn't fear a life of suffering is because he's obsessed with Jesus. Maltby Babcock said this. They said, life is what we are alive to. Life is what we are alive to. So here's the test. You look at verse 21. How would you fill in these gaps? How would you fill in these gaps? To live is blank and to die is blank. All of us will have nuanced approaches and probably not just one statement. You know, we're, we're very complicated people. But maybe you would put in to live is money and to die is leave it all behind. You know, maybe our obsession is with things, material and we find security in them. And, and, and just like Solomon said, the problem with that is when you die, you don't take any of that with you. 
moths and rust destroy it. So to live is money, then to die is to leave all of that behind. Maybe for you to live is fame. Then to die would be to be forgotten. Because if all we're looking for is validation from other people, significance from other people in our lives, once we die, again, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, the next generation's not going to remember you. I don't care how important you were, how many monuments were built in your name. He goes, a couple years from now, no one's going to even remember who you were. Or maybe for us, it's to live as power. Then to die would be to lose it all. Are we looking for control? Death shows that we have none. It's an illusion. But if we echo Paul's heart and we fill in the blanks like he did, we will find a way to have joy in every single circumstance, and we will find that God can use every single thing in our lives to further the gospel, to take it into places it's never been before. Do we echo Paul's heart that to live is Christ? And if that's the case, then to die, it's gain. To live is to live in Christ, to live for Christ, to, to live because of Christ, to live through Christ, and then to die is to be with him. And we have joy in all of it. So here's, here's what I submit to you. What is the greater tragedy? Is the greater tragedy Paul, who was beaten, who was imprisoned, who was left to die, but in that he advanced the gospel and magnified Christ in his body? Or is the greater tragedy somebody who lives in complete freedom and has comfort and pleasure in all of the worldly possessions? but lives completely for themselves. Which is the greater tragedy? I want to end, there's this poem, this beautiful poem, that uh, was written by a lady who had gone through much, um, much trial in her own life. And she read this passage, and, and this is what she said, and it's a prayer, and so I want, I'm going to read it through once, and then the second time we're going to stand and we're going to make this our prayer together uh, to him, and then the second time through the band can kind of come up and we'll transition to worshiping our magnificent obsession it says the things that happen unto me are not by chance i know but because my father's wisdom has willed to have it so think about the significance of what she's saying there for the furtherance of the gospel as a part of his great plan god can use our disappointments and the weaknesses of man give me faith to meet them bravely trials i do not understand to let God work his will in me, to trust his guiding hand. Help me to shine a clear, bright light and not to live in vain. Help me hold forth the word of life and triumph over pain. Just stand with me and we'll pray this, that he would be our, our one magnificent obsession. Oops, put this up so get out of the way. The things that happen unto me are not by chance, I know, but because my Father's wisdom has willed to have it so. For the furtherance of the gospel, as a part of his great plan, God can use our disappointments and the weaknesses of man. Give me faith to meet them bravely, trials I do not understand, to let God work his will in me to trust his guiding hand. Help me to shine a clear, bright light and not to live in vain. Help me hold forth the word of life in triumph over pain.